We can't stop talking about the coronavirus on this podcast. It keeps getting worse. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. Chris Ranowski's taken a couple of days off. Happy Thursday. Not quite Friday, but you should be starting <laughs> to get a little excited, right? Yeah, the weather's improving, right? And it's a DeWine briefing day. So what is not to get excited about? Oh, that? Laura. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I wonder how many people who watch that doze during it. I mean, <laughs> Me. the first half hour is dreadful. I'm one of them. Often. You know, when he starts <laughs> interviewing people, it's like really hard. To, you got to kind of almost get up and walk around. Okay, let's begin. How many times this month has Ohio set a daily coronavirus record? Jane Cahoon, it's it's becoming a almost daily occurrence that we have a new record. I'm worried that today or tomorrow we could cross the 25, 26, 2700 level. It seems like it's a regular occurrence. The curve is very steeply going up. Yeah, it's really it's really disturbing. So five times this month, including three just in the last week, we've broken records. So on Wednesday we had 2366. And then uh, just going backwards, October 17th, 2,234, October 15th, 2,178, October 14th, uh, 2,039, October 9th, 1,840. So, you know, it just keeps going up and up. You got to wonder if we're going to hit 3,000 cases. You know, the state's report from Wednesday also showed like 241 new cases from Cuyahoga County. That's the highest since they hit 275 on July 15th. We had 66 deaths reported Wednesday, not an all-time high, but still oh, high. high. Hospitalizations yeah. continue to go up. On on Wednesday, we had 1,252 people hospitalized with COVID-19, including 345 people in ICUs and 164 people on ventilators. You know, a week ago, that number was 1,039 cases, including 266 people in ICUs and 140 on ventilators. So as I said, those, you know, you, you just brace for what each day is, is going to bring. Like today, we'll get a new alert map and, and we'll have to see if more counties are, are in the red. The, the current map has 29 out of 88 counties. That was an all-time high. We're also looking for the data from schools that we get today. Um, That's going to be bad. We I have bet. many schools rethinking about, you know, whether they're going to go back to all remote. We had the College of Worcester uh, yesterday saying it's near capacity for the, the space it has set aside for students in quarantine and isolation. And they decided to go back to remote for the rest of the semester. So, you know, I'm just thinking we got to wonder whether Governor Mike DeWine today at his briefing is is. It's going to make that transition from like disappointed dad to to something a little sterner, well, you know? Well, what I'm wondering is why the hell Mike DeWine and his health department don't get off their keisters and do the contact tracing exercise we've been talking about for three months. I mean, you're talking about how it's up in Cuyahoga and we've we're, you know, we're almost doubling more than we're going to end up more than doubling. We have more than doubled the numbers in a very short period of time. And we don't know how. You know, all these people in Cuyahoga County who are around us now have it. Yeah, I mean, that's a scary number, but we don't know how they got it, even though the state has done many thousands of interviews with people to try and find out how it's spreading. 
put it into a big database that they can't collate or search. It's idiotic yeah. that they don't have a team of clerks combing through that data to make it searchable. And we, we've talked about this and talked about this. We've talked to the health department. We've talked to Dan Tierney. It, it just doesn't make sense to me that they have this treasure trove of information that might help us not get the damn thing. And they won't do the work. What? I just don't get it. And really, I think when we get a chance at a question, we ought to ask it again. I know it's been asked and right, answered. Right. But what the hell, man? It's like, <laughs> do it. He hinted. Did, didn't you guys hear him say this on Tuesday? He kind of hinted there was going to be some county by county information or some kind of new data that we were going to be getting that might help speak to this, but I, I don't so know. So far, it's all anecdotal. So far, they have not done what you should do with data. But the, the, And the most ridiculous thing is they have it. It's not like, oh, we should go out and figure out how it's spreading. They have it. But it's like it's in a foreign language and nobody speaks the language. Yeah. You know, get a translator, for Christ's <laughs> sake. So let's fix this. So I, I just, it boggles my mind. But but what what really is frightening at this point is the curve. I mean, it, it's sharply, sharply upwards, and we don't have any sign of a plateau. So we talk about this almost every day, but this is the news story of the day each day. It's out of control. Yeah, it's hard to believe we're, we're just about back to where we started here. I, but the, the, <laughs> the attitudes about things are, are not the same. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why was Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson so slow on hiring a consultant for the West Side Market? And why has a city councilman now stalled that hiring? Laura Johnson, there was a little bit of good news for the West Side Market yesterday. The city's going to forgive a few months of rent because they're in such a hardship. But it was kind of mind-boggling to read Bob Higgs's story about this yesterday we we last thought about the West Side Market a long time ago and thought a consultant was being brought in to figure out a path forward. And it's just happening now. Yeah, I can't tell you why Mayor Frank Jackson's administration took, what, eight, nine months to bring this up. But it's a it's a one hundred and thirty seven thousand dollar study that t- could take another three years to complete. So. He, they didn't have immediate comment on why. But despite, you know, the fact that they've been working on this for so long, City Councilman Carrie McCormick, who covers that area of Ohio City, wasn't briefed on the legislation prior to this meeting on Tuesday of Council's Development Planning and Sustainability Committee. He doesn't want to wait three more years. He wants to have a public hearing now. And he says, you know, the community and beyond is very interested in what happens in the West Side Market. This is a beloved city treasure, and they don't want to just do this in a vacuum. This sounds kind of crazy to me, but it's fitting with the city. Councilman Joe Jones wanted to know the number of vendors at the market, the vacancy rate, and the amount of revenue it generates. And the Jackson's administration did not have those answers at the at the meeting. I'm a little bit surprised that they did not brief Carrie McCormick because Frank Jackson, one of the things that, that has always been important to him is the council tradition that that the councilman woman representing each ward is in charge of that ward. And so if the city is doing something in that ward, they always work with the council person. So it's pretty shocking to hear Carrie McCormick saying, I don't know anything about this. And then, like you said, shocking that they didn't have basic answers. Uh, I'm just surprised they brought it forward after nine months without doing the work. And, you know, good for Carrie McCormick for standing up and saying, no way, no how. Um, This is not the way to manage public policy. Of course, since this controversy began, 
the, the West Side market was foundering way before COVID. And with COVID, yeah, you know, what what is its future? You would think that that would be a significant factor in what a consultant might think about. And to not have a discussion about that, it seems odd as well. Yeah. And this building has issues. The city had planned to spend about $15 million on upgrades. It is owned by the city. It operates the market as an independent enterprise, supposed to generate enough money to pay for itself. That hasn't happened in years. So some council members want to give it to a nonprofit to manage, but I I don't think Jackson's in favor of that. Now, Jackson is very, very big on maintaining the city assets. He he just, that's, that never really, well, I don't want to say never, it almost never flies with him. He would really have to be convinced there's a financial incentive. I'm just surprised that it it didn't happen for nine months. Maybe it's because of COVID. City Hall has been closed since March and they've been maintaining services, picking up the trash and all the things that they normally do. So maybe this kind of initiative was put on the back burner, but they should have said that. They should have said, hey, look, I know we were talking about this back in February. You know, we haven't had much time to work on it in the past seven months because we've all been slammed by COVID, but we do want to get it moving. The lack of communication is alarming and and clearly alarmed the councilman. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why didn't Ohio join the federal government's huge antitrust lawsuit against Google? Jen Cahoon, I was a little bit surprised when I read that story. I was looking for Ohio because we always join these kinds of things. Why didn't we? Well, there are 11 states that have joined, and you're right. Ohio is not one of them. And Attorney General Dave Yost told Jeremy Pelzer on Wednesday that's because his office is participating in a similar but separate investigation into Google's business practices. And that case also involves attorneys general from 47 other states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. He wouldn't really elaborate, but he said something on that front will probably be made public in the relatively near future. Uh, but his reasoning is he he said he didn't want to surrender control of any antitrust action to the feds. He said, when you join the DOJ, you are in the DOJ's sandbox. Uh, and we believe that the states have some additional issues and we want to make sure we remain in the, at the decision-making table. So he's, he's wants to be a little more protective of the state's interest, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm throwing the flag, man. I'm throwing the flag. I know flag. you're thinking about the, the opioids. The uh, opioids, yeah. man. He, he tried to take over every county and city lawsuit over the opioids, saying that the state should control it. And the counties and the cities were basically saying, yeah, we get into that. We're in the state sandbox. You can't have it both ways, Dave Yost. Either you play in the sandbox or you don't play in the sandbox. <laughs> you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. He did say he he welcomes the Justice Department lawsuit against against Google. He did join a separate ep- effort by AGs from other state to investigate Facebook for potential anti-competitive conduct and and that investigation's still going on. Look, it's a good thing. I mean, he's doing the right thing. These these tech giants have gotten huge. Facebook has done a lot of harm to the American political process. <laughs> Google's driving everybody out of business, including some newspapers. So, you know, we, not that we have a, a next to grind. <laughs> it's good that the attorneys general are looking at this. They're supposed to protect people. I just find his logic for not joining the federal case to fly in the face of his megalomaniacal effort to take <laughs> over all the opioid lawsuits. You can't do both. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Why has a Hudson mom sued her school district over the coronavirus? Laura Johnson, this is fascinating because parents are really breaking down on both sides of this. This is completely opposite to what we saw in the Orange School District earlier in the week or late last week. What's the Hudson mom's claim? Yeah, this Hudson mom, uh, whose younger child is enrolled at Hudson Middle School, doesn't want her school to go or her doesn't want the whole school to go back full time learning. So they they returned to full-time in-person learning on Monday. They had been hybrid. She claims that the district's decision to reopen in the middle of the pandemic, quote, unduly risked the health and safety of the students, the staff, and their families. So the board decided last week that all the K through eight students would go back and their all-in model attend five days a week. And they based that on state, county, local, and school district COVID data, said they met their scientific criteria for returning to school. Days later, Summit County, like Cuyahoga County, went back to red for level three. But the superintendent said he spoke with the Summit County Public Health Commissioner and said that they looked at zip code factors, uh, cases in the school district, and they they think this is safe. They're continuing the hybrid model, though, for high school students. And I looked this up this morning. I wondered, so many school districts have an all-virtual option that kids could do if they didn't ever want to go hybrid or full-time. And Hudson does have this, but I guess this this mother didn't use that uh, option and she wants to keep it in hybrid. You know, I'm married to a teacher. And so I can speak from personal experience that teachers are really having a hard time doing their jobs in any situation during COVID, that, that the inability to work more closely with kids because of all the barriers that have to be in place, it's just challenging. And so to, to, I think having multiple plans in a district just complicates mm-hmm. it for the for the teachers. I mean, I I don't think I think everybody's taking the teachers for granted in this. And and again, I have a personal <laughs> vested interest in their mental health, but but we really shouldn't be. This is hard. I get what the mom is saying. She's like, hey, I don't want the teachers and their families to get sick. I don't want the students and their families to get sick. Why don't we just have a single system? But it's the opposite of what the parents in Orange said when Orange decided, whoa, 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 we're spiking up again. We're not coming back to school. You had parents show up there saying, I want my kids in school, which, Laura Johnston, as you've said in the past, you can understand. I can understand. But you're right. This is easy for no one. I mean, it's not easy for the kids. It's not easy for the parents. And every hybrid plan is different. But, you know, my kids, they're doing Zoom specials. I feel so bad for these like art and music teachers that are teaching over the internet and they're teaching to small groups because that's how they break them down. They must be teaching 50 classes a week, the same thing over and over again. And I think we are all just not going to take for granted the day that we can go back and have school in session and not have half online and half, you know, in person. And, and I got an email today from the principal of one of my kids' schools that says kids are forgetting their masks. And it's just you know, this is really <laughs> well, it difficult. It but it doesn't matter. When the kids have their masks, they're not wearing them right. I mean, the, the idea that kids are all going to wear the mask correctly, it's just not happening. And, but, you know, and everybody has to realize nobody created this situation. Nobody likes this right. situation. The coronavirus is forced in on everybody and everybody's coping the best they can. But but the stress just keeps going up. It's why we're thinking of doing a mental health public service project at cleveland.com and the plain dealer because the stress is getting so bad you're listening to this week in the cle
Let's get some SEO magic by talking about strippers, Jane. <laughs> Why did a federal appeals court rule that exotic dancers in an Illyria club called the Brass Pole must be treated as employees, not independent contractors? It's always a little bit unusual when the august appellate courts of the federal system or the state system take up cases involving <laughs> strip clubs and the like. But they did. And it's actually a significant employment ruling. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure people will snicker about this given the salacious subject matter, but this looks like an important victory for two women who were not paid minimum wage by this establishment. In fact, they weren't paid anything at all. They they just worked for tips and, and they even had to give some of their tip money back to the bar. So they sued in federal court saying that the brass pole broke the Fair Labor Standards Act and state law by failing to pay them minimum wage in addition to their tips. And uh, they got a lower court ruling. And then this week, the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the earlier federal decision that says the women each deserve more than $17,000 in damages because they were employees who were integral to the business, not independent contractors. Uh, the, the federal judge who originally ruled on this case, Judge James Gwynn, noted that the brass pole, uh, you know, didn't pay the women anything, but it did pay others at the club, like the bartenders, the managers, the DJs and the bouncers. And um, as I said, they had to give back some of their money, like they had to pay $20 back to the club for the first private dance they provided each night. And it was called like a, a leasing space charge. And, and that decreased to $5 for each additional dance. But uh, the the appeals court agreed with Judge Gwynn about the women's importance to the business. And that was the, the critical factor here in determining that, that they should be classified as employees. And here's my favorite part. I think they, the appeals court said that while the brass pole calls itself a bar and grill, it has no kitchen and instead sometimes served pre-cooked microwavable burgers, hot pockets, and pizza from Sam's Club. And so in analyzing that factor, the, the courts wondered whether the business could not function without the services its workers provide. And here, the brass pole could not function without the services of its dancers. Well, the the odd thing was the, the, to make the argument that we provide a space for you to come in and ply your trade you know, it's interesting. That's what the, the antiques malls do. You know, they rent out space. The problem they had is they were supervised by people who work there. They were told what days they had to work and for how many hours. Mm -hmm. Well, then you're not an independent contractor walking in paying for a, a space to ply your trade. You <laughs> you are an employee. I can very much see why the court ruled the way it did to to basically order them to work on weeknights when almost nobody was there if they wanted to work on the more lucrative weekend nights and to make them pay money back. I and mean, it just yeah. sounds like this was was a pretty punishing atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So interesting ruling. I, I don't know that it has parallels for any other industry. It might just be apply, ap applicable to a uh, strip joint, but interesting that the court had to analyze <laughs> how this works. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
How much rain fell during that very loud thunderstorm that shook our houses early Wednesday? Laura Johnson, I must have been in the center of this thing because we had some thunder about 3.30 in the morning that I thought was going to knock my house down. And it continued for three more hours and it poured. So what are the numbers? Yeah, this was a lot of rain. Um, More than 2.5 inches fell at Cleveland Hopkins Airport, which is the official uh, National Weather Service um, area for taking these measurements. That actually doubled the monthly rainfall for October in Cleveland. And I thought we'd already had a pretty rainy month. We did, actually. We were already over average. Um, And my grass is growing, I swear, like it's April. But um, it brings the grand total uh, to 5.16 inches for October 2020 so far. Now, that was yesterday, and I know it's rained overnight, so we're probably higher. Um, That's three inches more than normal for the month. And we are 13 inches more than normal for the year. According to the meteorologist at the Weather Service, Northeast Ohio has seen a more active weather pattern than usual this fall. We've had these waves of cold fronts and low pressure systems. And then that caused a lot of flooding in areas like Cleveland, Parma, Lakewood, North Olmsted, and Menor. I don't know if anybody saw this. The photo is pretty incredible of a guy on top of his car in uh, the Rocky River Reservation in North Olmsted. He had to be rescued yesterday morning around 6 a.m. by firefighters because he just drove his car into a, you know, giant amount of water. So don't do that, people. I, you know, Jane Cahoon, I, I doubt Rich Eckner's <laughs> listening, but you know what's coming. <laughs> I'm going to ask him to look at this. I, I, I don't know if it's me, but I have not felt like this has been a year that's been very rainy. And I suspect that what we've seen is when we do have rainy days, it's been downpours like the one we had last month that turned a road in Cleveland Heights into a river and yesterday where it just poured. But but if you think back on the summer, we talked about it was a pretty nice summer that we had a yeah. lot of good weather, which we needed during the coronavirus because we all wanted to be outside. So it'd be interesting to look and see, uh, Rich Exeter. <laughs> he did that if, uh, at the end if, of the summer, I believe. He took a, a look yeah. at how dry were we. No, but I'm not. What I'm talking about, yeah, is more yeah, specific yeah. You want that. more, more, more. What, what did we have when we had a rainy day? Did we have a higher than average rainfall so that we might not have had more rainy days than normal, but we just had more powerful rainstorms? And that's, be a good thing to check in. That's into. happening more and more. And Sabrina Eaton did a really good story on this after Labor Day that the way the climate change works, that there's just more moisture in the air. So when we get downpours, we get them really hard. And that's affecting uh, the harmful algal blooms in Lake Erie because those massive rainfalls are what moves the soil off of the farm fields and into the Maumee River. And actually, this is pretty astounding to me. Three times since July has the um, giant sewer overflow pipe at Edgewater Beach gone off and like dumped raw sewage into the lake. And that was only happening maybe every year and a half or so. And we've had three times in four months, which shows you some of these massive downpours. Makes you want to go back and swim in it again. <laughs> Not going in until the spring. Can I just say, I slept through that entire thing that like shook you out of bed, Chris. <laughs> I can't believe it. I mean, that, I think it was that, because that, uh, that day it was a DeWine briefing and I really <laughs> and you were it. still sleeping yeah. from two o'clock. <laughs> okay, good ending. It's this week in the CLE. Can one million for Delta Airlines be enough to get them flying back into Akron Canton Airport? Jane Cahoon, Akron Canton Airport has been hammered. It was hammered when Cleveland stopped being the hub and all the airlines moved there from Akron Canton. Now, because of the coronavirus, they're they're a pretty lonely place. Will a million dollars be a difference? 
Yeah, uh, they wouldn't call it a gift. They would probably call it uh, an, an incentive. But but that is what, yeah, 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 right. <laughs> you know, I I found this really interesting that the, this airport may be the first to tap into this new $10 million air service development fund that was created by Jobs Ohio, which is the semi-private economic development arm of state government. And that fund was created earlier this year, and it was initially intended to help Ohio airports compete for new routes you know, including international service against uh, other airports in in other states. But but it can also be used by airports seeking to restore service that's been eliminated. So Jobs Ohio is going to contribute $800,000 to Akron-Canton's $1 million fund, and then the remaining $200,000 would come from the Akron-Canton community, including businesses and and local governments. The, The airport itself uh, is prohibited by law from paying airlines for service, although it's allowed to to waive certain fees. And they haven't worked out the the details of this. It likely would not be an outright payment, but rather like some sort of revenue guarantee. Um, so you know, you're right. Especially the smaller regional airports are having um, a really difficult time. Delta pulled out of Akron Canton in May. And there are now just three carriers that are flying to four destinations out of the airport. I just don't know that you can engineer economic forces like that. If you'll recall, there were big subsidies given to two different airlines to fly from Iceland to Cleveland Hopkins. And after about a year and a half, that went away, even though a lot of money was spent. Delta isn't flying into Akron Canton because it doesn't make any money flying into Akron Canton. And giving them a million dollars doesn't change the fact that it's not profitable and they're in business. It's not, this isn't a subsidized business. We're not, you know, it's not like we build highways for the airlines. So I just wonder whether you can engineer that, that, that when demand comes for that region to have air service where people are willing to spend money to fly out of Akron Canton to whatever destinations, airlines will go there. But if there's no demand can you force it with something like this? I guess we'll have to wait and find out. I want answers now. <laughs> you, you always do. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why might Linda Schuler of Berkshire Drive in North Olmsted want to think about moving? Laura Johnston, this is a woman that's not having some good luck. I feel so bad for this lady. Um, this poor woman, she's 73 years old. And for the second time since she moved in 40 years ago, a car crashed into her house. She lives at the end of a sharp curve. On in North Olmsted, and after the first crash about 29 years ago, the city added a metal guardrail. But now she's got wooden boards currently covering up her garage door again after a car crashed into her house. The woman who crashed there on October 13th actually tried to drive out of the garage after she made the impact, but the it, it totaled her car. Um, it, it totaled the cars inside the garage and it pushed a tractor through the garage's rear wall. So she wants something done about this. She wants more surveillance. She'll want a speed trap. But the city officials, they don't seem like they're in a hurry to do something about this. They kind of said, we put up a guardrail. You know, this curve was there before her house was. But the speed limit is 25. And if you are driving into a you know garage, you are going way faster than 25. 
You know, we've all seen as we drive around houses that are right in front of a T intersection Mm -hmm. and wondered, would would I want to live there? All it takes is one drunken driver to come plowing through. You'd want a boulder. You'd you'd want some gigantic big rock that would block the traffic from from coming in. But to have that happen twice, I I don't know that I could sleep there uh, unless I was watching the Mike DeWine. (laughs) (laughs) We're so bad. <laughs> I just that that's one where I you feel terrible for. Her. She's lived there for forty years, but this is a bit of a hazard. I I would not sleep well every time you'd go to bed at night. You'd wonder, is this the night the the car comes flying through my house, or what if it's a truck? What if it's something that does more destruction? Anyway, very unusual story. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We'll leave it there. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up a discussion on the week's news. 